The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Oh, the gang is going to get so much mail this time. We're not sure how serious they were about all these creative uses for cats in the cockpit, but they presented it all with such erudition. They hear about James's wicked past, get a report on one of the first sightings of a VLJ in the wild, compare notes on the best and worst planes of all time, and check in on the early arrivers to Air Venture 2007. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 34, Tales of Two Patties. I, I did, in fact, get a chance to see one uh, in situ, so to speak. I'm, I'm no aerodynamicist of how encumbered... James, by the way, you get the award for the $10 word of the day. Uh, all right, James, you, you got to put the thesaurus away. Yeah. <laughs> all right, push the button, Jack. Welcome, folks, to episode number 34 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. Uh, we're gathered again this morning in the virtual hangar. Let's see now, who's here this morning? Uh... Dave Higdon is here. Dave is talking. I am here. From Wichita, Kansas. Dave is an aviation photographer and a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine. He's also the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Good morning, Dave. Morning, everybody. Shut down, chalk the wheels, come on into the hangar. It's uh, going to be an interesting session. Yeah. I was watching the news. The president visited you the other day. Did he, did he say hi or did he like, uh, buy last, you a beer or something? Last Friday, he did a wonderful job of shutting down, uh, you know, better than a dozen airports in the TFR that was uh, active while he was here. Yeah. Uh, about the quietest that there was in the skies over our house all day. That's right. All week, all month, all year. And also someone who has some familiarity with the president's uh, security issues, Jeb Burnside is talking to us from <laughs> from the Washington, D.C. is from Springfield, Virginia. <laughs> Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also as a contributing editor to Avweb Biz. Hi, Jeb. Morning, Jack. Dave, I hope everybody's doing well today. So far, so far. We're doing, doing really well. Now, you guys are pretending like there's not somebody else here. There's also uh, James is with us this morning. James Winbrandt is uh, with us uh, <laughs> has uh, completed the uh, migration north, the spring migration, is back at uh, his home base <laughs> in New York City. James uh, like all the migratory birds, he's flown north for the summer. That's right. That's it, and happy first day of summer to everyone uh, listening and, and all of us here in the virtual hangar. That's right. James, That's is right. A, James is, of course, an author and aviation journalist, and... And uh, you know, I, every now and then I throw in the fact that you're a musician. I, I don't think you're a professional musician. I know you're a, you're a good musician. You entertain us a lot when we get together um, in Oshkosh. But I know that you guys, you and you and Rick, have been talking lately about what you're gonna you're gonna set one of those songs to music that we had on the uh, the lyrics that we had on the in the blog, right? Yeah, we're going to try and get a couple of uh, a couple of more tunes, uh, aviation oriented and Oshkosh oriented tunes in the repertoire. And in fact, I did start my career as a professional musician before I turned to the somewhat questionable profession of trying to make a living as a writer. That's right. <laughs> I, I'd sort of forgotten this. You sent me a picture. <laughs> Should I? 
telling people? Should I talk about this in yeah, public, James? Absolutely. I sent you a picture. Uh, you sent me a picture. Of <laughs> you uh, tell us what this picture was of. Well, the picture uh, actually was uh, emailed to me very recently uh, by my brother, who went to a lecture, and it must have been something about uh, New York. Uh, music scene and perhaps sort of the Andy Warhol crowd and its involvement. And the picture I sent you, which was a slide at this uh, lecture, is uh, Patti Smith and me from a publicity still from a, uh, a play we were in together, an off-off-Broadway play that had a lot of the uh, Andy Warhol people in that I happen to know uh, then. Uh, and so the two of us are there, and she is uh, shown in this cackling giggling pose and i apparently i don't remember all the details of the moment of the play but i know that the character that i played was antagonized by her because she was uh shall we say under the influence of her character of psychoactive substances and i had trouble oh, getting through to her terrible. sometimes so uh you know it was kind of like a, that. <laughs> a flash from the past now from the look and, of this uh, picture it was what, a couple what, of what years year ago. was this yeah this would have been about 1973. Oh, Nin man. Yeah, yeah, well, we, yeah a ways back. We better, not, ways, ways we, back. we better not torment you too much about your wicked past, because I'm afraid we, we might not all stand up too well under that kind of a... Um, besides, our wicked present is so much more fun. <laughs> and uh, I am, of course, Jack Hodgson up here in Boston, Massachusetts. I am a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Our Jack H. Our Jack H. Uh, so let's see now. Uh, James, you just came back from, you made the return flight up from Florida. Uh, yes. How, how'd that go? What was, uh, any, anything uh, notable? You were telling me earlier about your cats. What's that all about? Well, yes. Well, uh, you know, I, I bring the cats. I have two cats and I bring them with me when I go south for the winter. And then obviously they make the migration north. They're not very fond of flying, I will tell you that. Take a little uh, kitty quaaludes, does it? Well, one of them is too kind of old and he's lost a lot of body mass. So he is too frail and light, I think, at this point in his uh, life to have any tranquilizers. Uh, the other cat does get a little kitty tranquilizer for the flight. And I think they're kind of getting a little more used to it, though. They kind of know the drill. The fear of what's going to happen is not there so much, just the great discomfort that they don't like to be in an unusual environment and the loud noises. I, of course, try to be easy on the ascent and descents. Uh, I put them in carriers, of course, which anybody traveling with a pet, uh, dogs don't necessarily have to go in carriers from what I've seen. But cats, I don't think you want them running around the interior of the aircraft. Sharpening uh, their claws on the aircraft. Sharpening their claws. Right. And also, I do, you know, I do fly with them aboard. Uh, I not over 10,000 feet. So the turbocharger that I have doesn't do me a whole lot of good on these flights, but it helps keep them comfortable. And on descents, uh, usually I will start a descent over Philadelphia and tell the controllers, look, can I start a gradual descent? And I inform them that I have pets aboard and that I'm concerned about the, uh, the air pressure in their ears. So they're usually very understanding and helpful in that regard. 
They don't suggest you give the cats a piece of gum and. <laughs> no, no, they don't do that. They, you know, and they don't tell them to. Now, of course, if I did go up above ten thousand feet, then as we all know, is with unruly passengers, you can pretty much kind of put them to sleep. Right. But uh, <laughs> but I don't use that tack. Uh-huh. Calm and down, Kitty, or I'm going to flight level two, three. Exactly. Don't make me stop the plane. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's the, uh, so the the old story about using a cat in the cockpit as a backup attitude indicator? That now. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, no, no. This is this old oh, my God. Where's, where's Adam and Jamie when you need them? Yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I, I do. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, that's something to do with the cat, cat will always land with its feet up, right? Yeah. Or its feet so, on the ground. So, so right. the myth goes. Yeah, we, you know, right. We'll always land upright. So, right, yeah, yeah. so if you're so, flying and you're not sure about your the attitude of your aircraft, you kind of like throw <laughs> the cat around the cockpit or something like that. And I, I'm sure in a moment of emergency, that's a great thing to do. Reach around, try to grab the cat carrier. <laughs> <laughs> Pull the cat out. <laughs> yeah, the other thing you could do, of course, is is if you're stuck on top of an overcast without any way down, you throw the cat out the window and follow it down. There, there you go. go. <laughs> I've got this picture of a little glass panel. Uh, you know, a little glass pane in the instrument panel with a little tool. You know, in case of loss of attitude uh, indication, break this glass up cat. <laughs> yeah, the cat pops out and, and, and all as well. You know, it, it, you could also use the the cat's tail, like the you know this little piece of yarn on the cowling, as a slip skid indicator. There you go. <laughs> oh, excellent. So there you go. I'll just kind of put it up on the glare shield. Yeah. <laughs> next time. Now oh, that I, reminds me of a scene in a movie. Uh, what was it? High Road to China years ago with Tom Selleck. And he's flying an old biplane with no instruments uh, over the Himalayas, and you know he gets in the clouds and got no attitude indication. So what does he do? He takes his pint of whiskey out of his flight jacket, his big overcoat, and tapes it to the instrument panel, and uses the water liquid line in it as attitude indication. And I'm going, you know, that's okay unless you're pulling positive cheese yeah. on the way through going upside down. Uh-huh. Uh, one, one more, one more cat and airplane story. Years ago. <laughs> Years ago, uh, Gordon Baxter, late of uh, uh, Flying Magazine, wrote a column about the skydiving cat. And oh, the cat, I remember that. Uh, uh, basically, it was these two, two good old boys with an, uh, with an air knocker or something like that. And they put a piece of stove, uh, stove pipe in the side of the thing. And they took the cat up and they'd shove it out the stove pipe. <laughs> And they'd land, and the cat would be sitting there on the ramp licking its paws ready for another ride, okay? And so Baxter apparently would had been tasked to investigate all this, and he's going around looking for evidence, and he says, look, I just, I just need some physical evidence of all this. He said, you know, scratches on the inside of the pipe or, you know, something like that. I, you know, I just can't believe all this. The whole thing was just hilarious. It was, it was uh, a classic <laughs> aviation, aviation uh, 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 comedy. Uh, One more uh, – Pet flying pet story. There is a, a company. I just pulled up the website because I recall hearing this uh, Astro cat scratching, uh, you know, kind of thing. And Astro is actually the owner's cat. He flies a turbocharged Mooney. And on the website here at www.astrocatscratchingpad.com, there is a picture of Astro the cat at seventeen thousand feet with a little cat oxygen mask that this guy <laughs> has made for him over his face. So I guess that's another way of dealing with uh, taking uh, pets on turbocharged aircraft and being able to use the turbocharger. What do you think he had to give the cat 
in the way of tranquilizers to get him to keep that mask on. I mean, <laughs> but I want, yeah, what I want to know is, you know, what, what does the cat do to him after they land? Maybe it's a salmon. have an attitude, okay? Maybe it's a salmon. Maybe it's a salmon-scented mask. Yeah. Or maybe he's not pumping oxygen through that thing, but a little nitrous oxide. <laughs> <laughs> well, not all cats. The, are the pilot better be careful which tank. Right, right. I just think don't want let don't want that loose in the cabin. <laughs> not all cats are troubled. Not all cats are troubled by flight. My good friend uh, Jeff always used to talk about uh, flying with his Siamese cats. He'd, uh, he had three of them, and they not only were totally comfortable flying, they'd all curl up in the back seat. But there was at least one of them, he would say, that uh, uh, on final, uh, returning to the airport, the cat would climb into the right seat and put its paws up on the yoke and help do the landing. <laughs> and I've met these cats, and of course I've met Jeff, and uh, I believe this story. So, uh, Well, you know, the difference between cats and dogs, dogs have owners, cats have staff. There you go. That's, right. That's absolutely right. Hey, gang, tell us your uh, tell us your pet flying stories. It's apparently a, a, a treasure trove of uh, of fun flying stuff here. So uh, send us email or send us an audio comment. We want to hear your your pet flying stories. What else is going on? Is there must be now that is serious stuff. I was going to say there must be serious stuff going on in the aviation world, but that is pretty. Well, serious. we didn't treat it very seriously, but it is a serious topic. That's right. Well, I didn't prioritize the list this time, so I just got a big old list of things that are going on in the aviation world. Uh, what do you got? Pick one, somebody. What do you want to talk about? Well, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Go ahead James. Well, I notice uh, we've got here, one of the things was about the greatest airplane ever, which is obviously anytime you get in the hangar and you start going over, you know, airplanes you've flown and the greatest ever, et cetera, that's going to be a great topic. What I found interesting, and this is uh, something that Tom Norton, who we all know from General Aviation News, great uh, aviation reporter, wrote. And I guess the three aircraft that came up were the Wright Flyer, the Cub, and the DC-3. And before getting into that, what struck me about that is the contrast with the recent competition on the greatest aviation movie ever yeah. done, yeah. where we came up, the public came up with Top Gun. Now, my opinion, there are many great a, a lot better aviation movies, but yet here was one pick that is from the modern era. Everybody's seen it, and it's like everybody forgot all these respondents of all the great classic aviation movies went before. This contest, people ignore everything they know and went to airplanes. I, I'm pretty sure I can say authoritatively nobody alive today ever flew a right flyer. I'm wondering how many people that, that picked the Cub have ever flown that and whether they're talking J3 or Super Cub. And DC-3, they've seen it, but I wonder how many people have been aboard. And that's one of, before anybody wants to deconstruct the choices of the greatest aircraft, I was struck by that semi-disconnect in these two contests between the present and the past. Uh-huh. Well, okay, yeah, so yeah. then, so tell me then, so what do you think, and I'm going to ask this question a particular way, James, What what is the second greatest airplane? Because I know what you think is the greatest airplane. Well, I don't want to get <laughs> personal things in it, but... Uh, Greatest airplane, you know, it is very hard because what do we mean about great? Something that is groundbreaking, that's 
suddenly changes the paradigm. Obviously, the Wright Flyer changed the, the paradigm for all air, AV, you know, for all travel because it made travel in the skies possible. But clearly, if it was the greatest, we wouldn't have evolved beyond them. People would have said, hey, here's the greatest airplane in terms of performance, etc. cetera. Uh, so in the regard of being trend-setting, I would say all three were great were incredible trendsetters. The greatest plane, uh, you know, let's take the Cub. Are we talking J3 or Super Cub? I would say the Super Cub is a much, much better, more capable, safer, easier plane to use than a J3 Cub, even though J3 brings back all those memories of the hand propping and getting everybody into the skies. Right, so, using fingers. And yes, so I will just kind of, between those two, and having <laughs> flown, you know, both. I got my uh, tail dragger type rating in, in a J3, and I've you know been able to fly a number of Super Cubs, and there's not much comparison, even though they look the same. Well, I'll, I'll be the first to say it. The greatest airplane is the one I'm flying. Yep, yep. Okay. All right. Love the one you're with. Partisan. Partisanship. I love it. Yeah, see, that's love why I, thought, I was sure James was going to go for the Mooney, but no, I guess yeah. not, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, the Cub, the DC-3, the P-51, I uh, see some others in here listed as like, uh, uh, well, here, here's a guy who's, who's listed uh, an ME-262. Yeah, duh. Well, how many people have flown a 262? Well, how mm-hmm. many of them are there? And the Spruce mm-hmm. Goose, you know, only all, that's only been flown once. Um, and it didn't uh, get know, very high. Yeah, I mean... Yep. You have to. I think you have to restrict it. You have to restrict it to military uh, transports or uh, or GA. And How about the one seventy two? One seventy two I mean, is a great airplane. Absolutely, yeah. the Bonanza is a great airplane. The, Cher- right, the Mooney, Cher- the Mooney, is a great airplane. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you, you know, it's it, it's not too hard to uh, it, it's not too hard to come up with an era oriented list right. of airplanes that were the greatest of their time. Because the ones that were the greatest of their time usually were groundbreakers in some way, mm-hmm. and 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 then later were superseded by the groundbreaking of something you know new and better along the same lines. Uh, uh, James was just talking about the J three versus the PA eighteen. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, in the 30s and 40s, the J three was just the top of the pack because it was so accessible. And it turned on so many people to flying. I mean, yeah, the tri-motor was good, uh, but not exactly in the same class. Uh, you know, the uh, the stagger wing was great, but nowhere near the same class uh, in terms of accessibility and, 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 and ease of getting into. But a great classic airplane for its time. I think the uh, stagger wing is probably the best biplane yeah. ever made. Well, let's uh, – what about – Putting it in the uh, context of safety, the best airplane is the safest, and I'll throw out a couple of B-17, because you could shoot the hell out of it, and it would still fly (laughs) and get the people back safely, and the Cirrus, because if something happens, arguably, you can pull a parachute, and it will, uh, the ballistic parachute will lower to the ground. Sure. Now, you know, another, another topic for discussion would be the worst airplanes ever. Ah, okay. Oh boy, now that's a bigger <laughs> list. And, and, and my my vote would be the guy who cuts me off in the pattern. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst pilot. <laughs> yeah, Jim, yeah. You, you have a very personal view of this whole thing. Don't you? 
<laughs> You're starting to get the picture, aren't yeah. you? Uh, it, well, it is a personal thing. It's very personal. And, and uh, you know, again, looking at just looking at this piece, and it's in uh, General Aviation News, uh, uh, dated June 8, um, all of the uh, uh, responses are very personal in nature. And uh, uh, Not the person who suggested the right flyer. Well, yeah. Now, and, and, and James, you had mentioned, you know, how, how many people have flown a right, a right flyer? Well, the original one, very, very few. Uh, and none of them, I think, two, are living. Two, two, two guys flew the, uh, two, flew the, original, the original right flyer. The, the replica, um, uh, a handful of people have flown them, not, most notably, perhaps, uh, Scott Crossfield. But, uh, uh, the late, Scott, great the late, Scott Crossfield. The late, yeah. late Craig. Um, I don't know. I mean, Scott had to say about it, it was a... It was a cast iron dog to fly. Yeah, uh, and you can you can say cast iron bitch. Uh, uh, it I, was. I, I started to, but yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of the in terms of the Wright aircraft, I think that probably more influential would have been the what the nineteen oh eight Wright flyer, right? That yes. was that was the one yep. that really Far kind more. of began to popularize the whole thing. That, that, that's the one that when they took it to Europe, they they, they made people's jaws drop. And, 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 you know, the air pressure and the fuel so, drop as everybody gasped at what they were able to do with that airplane. That, uh, uh, and the French were already seeing aviators uh, fly machines in France, but n with nowhere near the degree of speed or control that the Wright showed with their machine. Right. But we were mm. talking about bad airplanes. So what's the, what's, what, what oh, other bad, bad airplanes? Oh, man. See, the thing is, bad airplanes don't hang around very long. You know, so no, that's it, right. It, it's or, or airplanes that get a, a bad reputation, like the Tramahawk, yep. <laughs> that people say actually is not a bad airplane at all, it's but not. it got a bad reputation of being difficult or easy to spin and difficult to get out of a spin. Well, uh, and, I don't and, and at one time, it was considered the leading aircraft in all, of all time in terms of airworthiness directives. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, there's a bad one. Uh, what would you say about the Starship? There, talk about a star-crossed aircraft. Oh, All these see, great dreams a, for it. What, is that a good or a bad airplane? Dave, do you have anything to add on the Starship? Well, I haven't spent <laughs> a little time on the flight deck of Starship. Uh, I flew a single-engine approach in IMC in level two weather into Omaha, Nebraska some years ago. Uh, let me tell you. Uh, from the from the pilot's perspective, and that, that that's an extraordinary aircraft. Uh, mm. What what few of them are left? Uh, it 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 was star-crossed, you know, from the get-go, though, as Jeb as Jeb put it, because the uh, the uh, the cutting-edge nature of both the design and the materials that they used, uh, carbon fiber and, and and epoxy resin and. Uh, everything had to be hand laid up. The FAA had no frame of reference for composites, uh, so they tried to uh, make some of the structures match what they would have done if it had been in, in aluminum. And in some cases, went overboard, and the aircraft gained a huge amount of weight uh, beyond its design specifications, which meant they had to up the horsepower rating on the engines, which meant they had to up the fuel capacity that was available in the aircraft to feed the bigger engines and it was just a death spiral for the airplane between that and production delays by the time it finally came out the citation jet was just you know gobbling up what should have been the starship's market and we can think of another aircraft uh, a contemporary aircraft that is going through the similar 
some kinds of problems with engine uh, upgrades and, and then fuel capacity upgrades and production delays and, and pedot uh, system problems. Right. What aircraft you know, is that? That would be being, the Eclipse. Being out on the bleeding edge is, is it can fine. be a risky place to be. And, uh, you know, uh, hats off to Vern Rayburn and his crew down there in Albuquerque because uh, they, they didn't just tackle bleeding edge in one area. They tried to tackle bleeding edge in virtually every area uh, from how they manufactured uh, what would otherwise be a conventional metal airframe with friction stir welding to uh, the uh, decision to go with a uh, uh, prototype Williams uh, engine that should have been just kick butt, yeah. but wasn't. And uh, to uh, go with a panel system that really didn't exist except in the minds and, and the imaginations of the engineers and the designers. Uh, it's been a it's been a tough road for those guys, and uh, and I guess one of the items we got on here today is that somebody actually saw one somewhere. <laughs> Hello, yeah, James, you there? Yes, I just lost all communication momentarily. That's all right. You're here now. Um, it was okay. just me. We're just talking about the item you put on the list about the uh, eclipse sighting. What's that all about? Well, the last time that uh, we were all in the virtual hangar together, uh, we talked about them kind of being in the air and to be on the lookout for them. And I, I did, in fact, get a chance to see one uh, in situ, so to speak. Uh, I was going from, uh, <laughs> from St. Augustine to uh, Gainesville, and I heard uh, Dayjet on the frequency. And I asked if, indeed, they were flying Eclipse, and, and they were. And I you know, uh, extended the wishes of all general aviation pilots to them to do well. And then I went to Gainesville. And as I saw recently, I guess that's the, one of the new centers for uh, for that's Dayjet, uh, one of their hubs, and also where there's going to be an Eclipse Service Center. Yeah, and, they just uh, opened it up about a week ago. Yeah, but I was there about a month ago, and then uh, as I was leaving, an Eclipse was coming back from one of their training missions, so I saw them indeed landing at Gainesville and uh, taxing off the runway and back to their uh, hangar facilities. So that was my first, uh, beyond seeing them on the ramp or a flyby at an air show, that was the first actual sighting of one in use. And uh, I hope to see many more of them. I hope we all do. Uh, you should. Yeah. That's we great. all should. Yeah, but we don't think the Eclipse is among the worst airplanes ever. Built. No, anyway, definitely we, not. No, no. It, definitely it, it not. It's definitely had a star crossed path to reality. Uh, and. You know, we expect it's going to do a lot better than the Starship. Uh, may it may it rest in pieces wherever Raytheon put all the pieces. The ones they cut I, I up. Think, I think the bottom line, though, on the Eclipse is it's just too soon to tell. Yeah. Yep. I, I agree. And, and in terms of good, wrapping up my thoughts on this greatest airplane, from a GA perspective, I don't think it's been built yet. I think the greatest GA airplane is going to take advantage of uh, new turbine technology and obviously all the new avionics. And we're at some point going to have a, a great GA airplane that's a jet powered GA airplane that uh, most pilots will feel comfortable controlling and flying. And that brings us kind of full circle back to one of the points someone made a, mo a few moments ago, which is we really have to define the era, you know, mm -hmm. the made yep. and flown. Um, you know, talking about Cubs in the 30s and Bonanzas in the 40s and Skyhawks and and now Eclipse, we're talking about different eras. And, mm -hmm. uh, of course, half-turbine engines in the 30s and, 
and uh, uh, all this kind of stuff. There's a bug that just flew by me that should have an N number on it. It's so <laughs> Check and see if he's talking to uh, Potomac. Man. That's really, did he fire his? Probably yeah. uh, an NSA uh, uh, UAV, actually. Uh, okay. What else? <sighs> what else is going on here? Well, you, oh, you were talking, Jack, about the UAVs. Yeah, you well, I did. There was just oh, a little. Oh man, I heard a guy on the radio this morning. From, yeah, from Le Bourget, the Paris Air Show. Uh, you know, for, for those of you who may not be aware, uh, this year is the uh, biennial uh, Paris Salon at Aerospace at uh, Le Bourget, where uh, Lindbergh landed at the end of his uh, historic flight, and uh, big trade show, biggest in the world. Uh, airline manufacturers and and buyers and sellers and engine people and GA people that. They're all, you know, in about uh, three million, four million square feet of space at the airport there, under roof and on static. And a guy over there talking about the future of non-piloted airliners and how it's just just a matter of getting the younger generation more in control because younger people seem to like the idea of a robot flying their airplane, and older people for some reasons don't. And yeah, well, I, I wonder well, if older people don't have a little experience with things called the blue screen of death. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, well, see, now I make an important, and this is the distinction I make, because you're talking about autonomous aircraft, an airplane that controls uh-huh. itself, and then there's the unpiloted or, or, or remotely piloted, uh, which right. means that they've got a human pilot but is just not on board the aircraft. Right. Um, and I, but, I could but, get okay with the remotely piloted airliner, but I'm not that, sure if I'm ready for an autonomously piloted one yet. That, that brings us kind of full circle here on, on a topic. And, and another, <laughs> another item that's on the uh, topic list for today is a, um, uh, a regional jet, American Eagle regional jet, landed yesterday at Boston Logan with landing gear trouble, circled the airport, big to do. You know, they got pictures and the whole thing. What would we do if we had an episode like that in, a, in an autonomous aircraft or a remotely piloted aircraft? Oh, you call I, I, IT. You call <laughs> IT and have them reboot the sucker, yeah. That's right. You just uh, call IT. Hi, we've got one stuck up there. The wheels won't come down. Uh, you know, could, could you check and see if there's a System 32 error? That's right. Have you tried let turning it, it off up- and then back on again? That's right. Let us upload this patch. Right. You're right. You'll all- be put through to somebody in India. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, aside, years ago when this, when people first started seriously talking about automatically piloted aircraft, what some people seem to say and, and suggest is that passengers, if the plane is going down, they want somebody from the company going down with it too. <laughs> so, good, very good point. You know, very- so. It might we might see if indeed this is the way things are going. We might still see a human sitting aboard there to kind of be the overseer and also to kind of be the company representative. That hey, you folks aren't in it by yourself. We've got some life at stake as well. Well, and here's two what? stories. So back in the way way back when, um, years and hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, you know they'd build ships, you know, ocean going ships, on an inclined ramp. And then when the ship was built, it would roll down the ramp, slide down the ramp into the water. And they'd build these on relatively narrow port parts of the river, um, and they had to 
make sure that it, that the ramp was steep enough that the ship would actually slide, but not so steep because there were actually cases where the ship went into the river and made a wave that was so big that it literally drowned people on the far side of the river. Oh. So in order to make sure that the people that were doing these incline calculations took it seriously, one of the requirements was that you had to watch the launching from the opposite side of the river, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and how many of us want to see that when we get our plane annualed that somebody from the shop doing the annual test flies it yeah well and and that's sort of my second story about this is is a back when i was living in silicon valley i heard stories and i don't know whether these were true or not but it kind of has some sense to it is that the uh, software engineers and the quality assurance engineers who were testing the uh, fly-by-wire software were sort of required either officially or unofficially to go on one of the early flight flight tests to, uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, if you're going to have to ride in this, we're, that we kind of feel like you're, you're paying attention and finding all the bugs. And, no, no, no doubt with a spare computer and an RS-232 cable yeah, tucked in his pocket. I mean, all kidding aside, you're worried about these things, you know, having these uh, UAVs and, and autonomous vehicles having software problems. I mean, a lot, almost all these new jets are fly-by-wire anyways. I mean, if you're going to have this problem, you're going to have this problem. And uh, Well, there's another issue here. Airplanes are hugely aerodynamically disadvantaged by the requirement to have a space up front with windows for humans to look out. And if you see what they've come up with, what they can do if they didn't have that, it's quite amazing. You're right, James. Uh, You look at some of these, the very successful UAVs uh, of any size for that matter. Right. Um, the, the lack of a, a cockpit or the, the lack of a need for a cockpit uh, really frees up the design, really frees up the engineers, and they can do a lot of different things. Well, uh, but, but, the the one thing to I... keep in mind, though, on, on these remotely piloted airliners or UAV airliners, you still have to have a flight attendant. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's one of two points that was in, is stuck in the back of my throat. One, you know, wow, no pilots, but we still have to have FAs in the back. Right. Uh, and, of course, we'll ha- still have to have air marshals. So, you know, there well, will be company representatives on board and, and, and federal government representatives on board. The second, in terms of you, what yeah, you can you, do you, with that you, you can take a, space. You can take a gun on board, but you can't take a laptop on board. Would that be the th- way? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, it's like, uh, sure, you don't have to plan a space for pilots to occupy necessarily but since you still have to have that big freaking tube behind what was going to be the Uh flight deck uh there's no reason why whatever finish shape you could put on the end of the airplane couldn't accommodate a cockpit as well i mean take a look at the b-29 uh the b-29 was a perfectly symmetrical front end uh that incorporated a lot of windows uh unlike most of the bombers before and since they they were not perfectly symmetrical, you know. They had a, a little bit of asymmetry to them, a bump, a nose, uh, you know, a little uh, deck there that rose up for the for the crew to see out of. Not in the B twenty nine. Well, so I they, think that they could do pretty good things with that space now if they think outside the box. Yeah, I, I think just having it kind of cigar shaped as opposed to maybe being able to have a much more tapered front or something. I'm I'm no aerodynamicist, but I recall seeing some designs and the discussions of of how encumbered uh, aeronautical engineers are by having to accommodate uh, a visual capacity for the people sitting in the front. Sure. 
Yeah. James, by the way, you get the award for the $10 word of the day. Well, yeah. I missed it. What was it? Aerodynamicist. Aerodynamicist. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that follows his use of the phrase in situ. So. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's 20 bucks right there. All right. Uh, <laughs> All right, James, you've you got to put the thesaurus away. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, the third big word involves him paying us money. So That's right. <laughs> which, is, which is fat right, Back to monosyllables. <laughs> That's right. What else is going on out in the world? Let's see now. We're all getting excited about Oshkosh. Uh, we're oh, going to yeah. talk about Oshkosh a lot in the next couple of uh, episodes of this podcast. But I did want to just point out today that uh, that actually tomorrow, we're recording this on Thursday, tomorrow, Friday, uh, Camp Scholar opens, and uh, people will start moving in with their uh, camping gear, and uh, they're so already, I'm sure. So if you're in line to get there really early, you know, by the time you hear this, there'll be a place for you to camp. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I understand. And, and an amazing amount of people there already when it opens up this weekend, too. Rumor had it, rumor had it that they were going to actually have uh, Wi-Fi in Camp Scholar this year. I don't know if that if followed through on that. But if that's the case, there could be people sitting in their RV in, uh, in Paul's Woods right now listening to this podcast. Now, Jack, when you were a camper, would you use Camp Scholar or did you use a different area? Um, I've camped a couple of different places. I'd certainly camped in Camp Scholar a number of years. Um, my favorite place to camp is to camp under a wing on the North 40. Uh, that's, mm. without a doubt, the, the most fun place. I mean, the, the the creature comforts aren't outstanding no matter where you camp, and they're they're really kind of start to you know be short in short supply in the North 40. But there's so many other compensations that uh, you know set, pitching your tent under somebody's wing you know in in the North 40 is is the best is the now, best it, for a long time my favorite was near the red barn store there in camp schaller uh because before they rearranged a whole bunch of it uh, you know there was always something going on in the evening lots of people around the showers were right there uh the red barn store had you know supplies and provisions and it wasn't all that big a haul over to the newspaper office yeah you know? i almost one year i was invited to to pitch my tent among the cajun condo guys and uh, unfortunately wasn't able to do that but uh, camped with camped with them a couple of years camped in the north 40 a couple of times uh you know to me there's really not a a bad place to camp at oshkosh there are good places and there are more interesting places depending on you know what your what your biases are what your sensitivities and who you like to hang out with but uh, it, it it's got a lot of variety now the people parked uh, camping on the west side of uh 1836 those are you have to be like a vintage aircraft right to park there not the necessarily west side no. of you mean down, down, sort of to- in the direction of ultralights? Yeah, that's well. There's vintage camping there. Um, that's primarily the the area you're thinking about, James, I believe. Yeah, and I'm wondering whether there is a different vibe at those vintage camping grounds as opposed to the North Forty camping. You know, I'm I'm more familiar Not with the North lot. Forty myself. No, okay. Not a lot. I mean, it's. Uh it's you have to look the, the same beer among for the people. Well, let let me put it this way: Does anybody hook up a weed whacker to uh, a margarita making machine <laughs> in the vintage area? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's the Cajun condo guys. I mean, they're yeah. no, no. They that's, do, uh, that's the rubber chicken guys. Well, that's yep. the, that's what you're referring to. But but down on that on that end of the field on the on the uh, the vintage side of the field. Oh there, yeah, back there. In I, the woods. I, I think the answer is there really isn't any fundamental difference except the weed whackers are older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So camping starts, at least in Camp Scholar, camping starts tomorrow on Friday, and uh, it's just getting, we're about four weeks out from, well, we're four weeks out from our arrival. I, you, I guess you guys are arriving four weeks from today, right, uh, Dave and, uh, and yeah. Jeb? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm going to be arriving a week, four weeks from tomorrow. I arrive on Friday. Well, James, when are you getting in town? Uh, planning uh, on four weeks from tomorrow. Yeah. So... Uh, Getting excited, and in the podcast, we're going to have increasing Dad amounts. Larry Oshkosh has been notified. We're going to have increasing amounts of uh, of sort of pre-event stuff, and we're planning some some real cool things to pot for the podcast while we're out there. Um, one quick note, and I'll have a more formal announcement over the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, sort of, well, not strictly speaking, an uncontrolled airspace event, but the the gang over at the Pilot Cast podcast are going to be recording an episode uh, while at uh, at Oshkosh at AirVenture. And uh, they have invited all of us uh, who do aviation podcasts, who, anyone who's in town, to come and participate. And they're going to be uh, – they've apparently gotten one of the forum buildings uh, in the evening. Um, they're still trying to figure out exactly which evening. It looks like it might be like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or something like that uh, during the midst of the uh, show week. And uh, they're going to record a, an episode, and, uh, and we're going to be there and, and kind of – you know, say hi to everybody and uh, and uh, participate a little bit in that podcast. And uh, I and I'm certain that uh, you know you can come and, and watch the festivities. Um, we're going to announce uh, some the recording of uncontrolled airspace. Um, we're going to do two episodes while we're out there. Uh, we're working on the details of specifically when and uh, specifically where, but uh, more on that and later specifically on. Specifically how? And yeah, yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> what else is going on? What else you see on the list that you like? Oh. Uh, I don't know. Uh, one item on here, I, I mentioned earlier this this landing gear incident involving uh, an American Eagle uh, a regional jet at Boston yesterday. Uh, um, that, that event isn't real, really remarkable. Um, a buddy of mine who happens to be a captain for American Eagle these days had a similar event several years ago. Uh, took off out of, I think, Poughkeepsie or Schenectady as, as captain of a uh, Saab 340. And... Um, as they rotated off the runway, one of the uh, two nose wheel wheels uh, departed the aircraft. It was for sure. one reason or another, it wasn't secured and rolled off into the weeds. And didn't want to make that trip again. Yeah, um, the uh, the tower notified them, and <clears throat> uh, um, the uh, ground people went and sent out a car, and they found the wheel, and they got the serial <laughs> number off of it, and, and phoned back into the company and said, oh, yeah, that, that, that serial number's off your airplane. We got a problem, and da-da-da-da-da. They were inbound to JFK, and uh, went to JFK, and, and uh, you know, talking to the company on the, on the side frequency and everything like that. It made, eventually burned off some gas and, and made an uneventful landing on the long runway at, at JFK, and, and were towed off. Uh, uh, towed back to the gate and, and everybody got off fine and da 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 da. The punchline in all this, the way he tells the story, him and his FO walked off the jetway into the into the gate area arm in arm singing, You picked a fine time to leave me loose wheel. Loose wheel. <laughs> <laughs> but just, oh, I, just had, I just had to share that. All that way around the barn to get I to know. the punchline. <laughs> Just to come to that punchline. That's a long way to go. Let's see now. <laughs> Speaking of... No, and ha ha having met this guy, I, I have to seriously question the veracity of the story now. Oh, no, I've got a, I've got a clipping. I've got a clipping of, of the incident from, like, the Washington Post or the New York Times. But did they report on the singing part? Huh? Did they report on the singing part? 
<laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't have the equipment at the time. They right. gave they, a violation. They gave him a violation for. That's right. For, <laughs> for uh, 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 unlicensed singing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I told them not to quit their day jobs. That's right. That's right. Please That's right. don't quit your day job. Hey James, did you get your BFR recently? Yeah. Yes, I did. Tell us. Uh, you just. This is going to kill us all, but we're going to let you I tell know, the story just, anyways. That's Go ahead, James. Well, I had mentioned that uh, to you, I think, in the last uh, visit to the uh, the hangar, that uh, my BFR was was due uh, while I was down in St. Augustine, and uh, I was asking a friend of mine, uh, uh, who knows the area and who's based out of there, about the quality of the the uh, the local school, and it's, it is very good. But she said, "Well, you know, why don't you let me give you your BFR?" And I thought that was extremely generous. Uh, it's Patty Wagstaff. I mean, how many opportunities does one get to fly with a, a pilot yeah, of yeah. that skill level? That's right. And my my first thought is, what portion of the BFR did you have to do inverted? <laughs> Fortunately, we were right side up the whole time, which was good because I don't have a, an inverse oil system in the Mooney, so it wouldn't have lasted very long inverted. Or in your body, um, if it's me. I don't know. Yeah, you, you've got a tailwheel, tailwheel rating, James. Why didn't you ask to do it in her extra? Well, I, you know, she'd also, she had never been in a Mooney, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Really? Yes, she had never flown in a Mooney. Huh. Which is, I found somewhat remarkable, and I was very happy to kind of introduce her to a, a fine top-of-the-line Mooney. And, of course, you know, I approach it with uh, some degree of trepidation. You're talking about a superior pilot here, and nobody wants to come off looking like they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was, for the most part, uh, routine. The first part we did our air work, we went down to uh, Spruce Creek, where I'd never been, and did some air work on the way down to meet with uh, Dixie Walker and his wife, Mary. Dixie makes these incredible uh, models of various aircraft and has the people who are identified with them uh sign them, autograph them, and they're not just aircraft, I should say, they're also space capsules and stuff. So he has Eugene Cernan's uh, signature on uh, a lunar module, and he's cool. of course, has Bob Hoover and, and uh, you know, everybody you can think of, the uh, recently departed General Robin Olds, and uh, Patty went down to sign a couple of the models he had recently completed of her extra 300. Did you have lunch uh, at the pizza place there? We did not. We were going to, but we went to his house and spent so much time. He had such an incredible collection of all his models and photographs. It was just fascinating. So we spent quite a bit of time going through his collection there, which he was very gracious in showing us. He and Mary drove us around and showed us all the various parts of Spruce Creek. As I say, it was my first time there. So it was uh, quite quite an introduction to this world-famous flying community. It's not at all like the smaller residential air parks that I had seen in the past. It is a, no, quite a large just... development. Now, uh, all the streets are taxiways. Yeah. Now, flying with Patty Wagstaff, all kidding aside, flying with Patty Wagstaff as your instructor, um, I, yes. it's always, it, I mean, it amazed me in a good way that um, every time I fly with a different instructor, I learn something new, some different perspective, yes. something. Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering if you, if you can think of an instance. I mean, is there something well, you learned by flying with Patty Wagstaff? Definitely. Wagstaff? And I'm about to get to that. Uh, 
we flew on a day with pretty strong crosswinds. So everything was pretty routine doing our air work and our groundwork before going over rules and regs. And we got back, we were coming back to St. Augustine and getting close to the pattern. And, and she said, well, let's do, uh, you know, some touch and goes when we get there. I said, sure, fine. And she then asked me, do you, do you ever slip this train? And I said, well, I, you know, it can, and I have, but I don't really usually don't have to because I have my approaches set up and whatnot. But at any rate, she wanted to do uh, some touch and goes and her competitive instinct in a way or that tenacity suddenly seemed to kick in and what happened was she we're uh we did a regular touch and go and then we came back around back in the pattern and again this was a day of 19 to 22 knot crosswinds at one point direct crosswinds greater than the uh, than the demonstrated crosswind velocity? Yes, but as we know, that is not any kind of legal limit. That is just what the manufacturer has done to, has demonstrated. So we had, uh, now the runway there, the primary runway, uh, 1331 at St. Augustine is just under 8,000 feet and it's nice and wide. So you have a lot of room to work with. Sure, but we yeah. did have a pretty much howling crosswind. And on our second time around coming away, she wanted me to hold pattern altitude to a point where I, you know, I, didn't quite understand what was going on and no don't lose altitude don't lose altitude and it seemed we were almost over the approach and we said okay now land now pick a spot and get there and we started that was what we did for several more touch and goes what she wanted me to do was sort of demonstrate the ability and a sort of engine out situation to get the airplane down, however you have to, in a spot under control. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what was very interesting to me is when I think about engine outs, I'm always thinking about increasing the glide and getting to, you know, getting best airspeed, you know, best airspeed for uh, range and working and going as far as you can. This was completely different. It was so by the last few circuits, we were, she was pulling the power when we were midfield and high and saying, I want, you know, pick a spot and get it down there. Where, and as, where are you going to put it down? Do what, use whatever you have to full flaps, put on your speed brakes, drop your gear, but pick a spot and get it down and slip it if you have to. And so I was doing much more slipping probably than I've ever done in the aircraft and, you know, working up quite a sweat. Plus we had this terrific crosswind going to once when when I took it far down and I said, well, we want to taxi back. And the controller said, well, look, you can just do a 180 and take off in the other direction because you got a direct crosswind. So it really doesn't matter. And then do a, a teardrop and reenter the pattern uh, you know, when you're <laughs> up in the air. So, uh, you know, I, it, up until sort of coming back, it was pretty much routine and I was getting comfortable. And then she really kind of instructed me in doing that. And plus showed me her tenacity and competitive spirit. Cause she it was like, she wanted me to, to do it right. And to be as good as I could. And, and I got just an inkling of the nature that drives her to be the perfectionist she is. Well, and, you know, that's the trick that uh, you pick up and fly on sailplanes and hang gliders is when you're uh, doing cross-country, when you're not going to be setting up for the normal field you land in, you uh, you uh, use this little trick. You know, the stationary spot on the ground is going to be your touchdown point. Mm-hmm. 
But if you're crossing fence lines and tree lines and things like that, if it's not just wide open space like we might have out in western Kansas, uh, you know, farm fields, uh, ranch fields, whatever, then the uh, rule of thumb is you find that spot that's not moving and make it a point to land in the field nearest you from that. Don't try to stretch it all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, inevitably, something will screw you at that last fence line, that last tree line, and you'll wind up not landing under control. You'll wind up crashing into something. So the way they taught us and, and, and drilled us was find the spot that you're going to touch down in and then land well ahead of it. Even uh-huh. if it means starting an approach high and doing a 360 down into a field quite a bit sooner, but give yourself the altitude and control to stuff it into a little bitty field rather than trying to stretch it to the max. Right. And and you can stretch and you can stretch, but sooner or later, you've got to put that thing down in a spot. Right. And right. you want right. to be able to control where that spot is and use everything you got on the airplane to get you there. Slipping, dirtying, whatever you have to do. That's right. That's great. That's a great story, James. Thank you. Yeah, sure. And, it, was, and, it was a phenomenal experience. Hanging out with Patty Wagstaff, I'm not sure if I'm more jealous as a pilot or as a guy. But, <laughs> but I'm plenty jealous, James. So uh, yeah. <laughs> We're starting to reach the end of our allotted time here, guys. Is there anything on the list we definitely want to cover or we want to put some stuff well, off to uh, next time? I just, you know, a friend of mine uh, who some of you may know, Steve Kahn, noted uh, video aviation video producer, producer of uh, Wonderful World of Flying. He He's a, a former Mooney owner, and he's uh, moved from New York down to Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's been a member of a flying club uh, for the last few years and has not had an airplane. He called me earlier in the week and said, I'm thinking of buying an airplane, and, uh, you know, wasn't sure what. He's looking at Cirrus. He's also uh, flown uh bonanzas frequently you know and so looking at that and of course moonies and started like a flurry of sending me various uh emails and such with specs of planes and one thing first of all i'm very thrilled that he's getting uh, back into owning an airplane but also just the the comprehensive nature of what you can do with the web now to do your search and the fact that you've got the log books for the engine, propeller, airframe right online now. So the amount of research you can do without ever getting out of your chair is phenomenal compared to what it was uh, looking for an airplane in the older days. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's moved quite a bit beyond trade a plane and what yeah. you can find at the local airport, hasn't it? Yeah. And it certainly makes the marketplace much more transparent in terms of what are the values. Because blue book is blue book and who knows, but when you have a bunch of airplanes out there that you can see and compare side by side on the web, uh, it just, as, as they've talked about often in the business jet world, where it's even more opaque, now you really can compare apples to apples and apples to oranges much more readily. James, what uh, what price range is he looking in? Well, he started out, there was like an, an MSE, uh, 95 MSE, that's a Mooney, uh, with 1,300 hours, so that's, you know, it's a 2,000-hour TBO, and that was like it, uh, and all did, so he's looking, just for your reference, he wants something with a Garmin 430 or 530, and I believe if we disc- we've discussed, that's kind of now more and more people, when they're shopping, they want that Garmin, or they that's want some kind of pan flat panel in there. 
Right, that's almost uh, uh, standard equipment these days. Yes. Then he saw. Then he also saw a rocket, which is a uh, a turbocharged Mooney that had been uh, retrofitted with a more powerful turbocharged engine. It was the, a seventy nine rocket, so out of a Mooney two thirty one that somebody wanted one forty four. Uh, and that actually went very quickly, so that wasn't available anymore. Right. Yeah, those right. are fast airplanes. They don't stay on the market long. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, oh, it's a matter of you know, finding the right guy in the, in the right dollar amount. That's, that's right. Yeah. And that has a Garmin 430 and clean about 700 hours on it out of a 2,000-hour TBO. And they were asking, the, the person is asking 115 for that. Wow. Saw a nice oh. forty nine Bonanza with a Garmin four thirty in it recently, and they were only asking thirty eight for it. Huh. Well, he also saw a what like an eighty nine Bonanza that they wanted two twenty four. Wow. And I think he would like to be in closer to the one hundred, so in part, so he has room if there's other things he wants to do sure. to sure. the plane yeah. or maintenance or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Now's a good so time those to are buy. The- Ahead, no, it really is. Uh, no, I was just going to say, now's a good time to buy an airplane. Um, uh, prices are down. The overall economy is kind of trending downward a little bit here. Uh, um, I was communicating with my good friend uh, Al Lang, who's a vice president with Door Aviation Credit. Uh, he's helping me with a story this week. And uh, second time in a couple of months, I've talked to him about uh, finance. And uh, interest rates are really pretty competitive right now. 6.6% a lot of places are offering on, on huh. aircraft. So uh, you, you can actually do about as well with an airplane or, or even a little better with an airplane than with a house mortgage. Yeah. Well, Does it make sense to refinance if you're paying higher on your aircraft loan? Uh, it damn well can, uh, depending on what you're paying. Uh, you know, we were... If we hadn't sold our Comanche for our ill-fated gallery venture, we were going to refinance it the following year because we'd gone in at, I think, 10.5% when we bought it. And interest mm. rates were down around 5.6 or 5.7 uh, about yeah. the time we sold it. And uh, we were going to refinance it and uh, use a little of the equity to do some new work on it, uh, update <laughs> update the panel primarily. And... Uh, uh, then this, you know, business venture came along. But yeah, uh, that's a real easy exercise to do: is look at the remaining time on your note, and uh, and then uh, do the numbers on refinancing at the lower interest rate. Uh, you can refinance for the full term, or someplace, you know, there's no place that'll deny you refinancing for a shorter term. And you might even get a little better interest rate. So, say if you had, you know, five or six years left on a note, uh, refinance it for ten at a lower interest rate. Your payments are going to go way down. Mm-hmm. You can take a little equity out of it to do some improvements. Yeah. Right. Well, well, let's wrap this thing up here. Uh, any any uh, last shout outs? I know I have one here. Uh, well, two actually. Uh, I'm looking forward to this weekend on Saturday. I'm heading down to Kingstown, Rhode Island, to see the Blue Angels fly. That's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, great. And, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, this is down at uh, Quonset Airport. Air, it's a former naval air station, I believe, and uh, it's in Kings- near Musquamacut. I, I, is it? I don't know. Where's that? 
Musquamacut State Beach. It's a nice state park there in uh, in Rhode Island. Yeah, this is on the uh, too far. Nothing in Rhode Island is too far from any place yeah, that's right. Rhode Island. <laughs> but uh, Kingstown, Rhode Island, uh, on Saturday and Sunday, I'm going down on Saturday and I'm uh, going to see the Blue Angels. Uh, Sean Tucker is going to be there too, which I'm oh, kind of, uh, oh, excited cool. to see. And uh, Sean uh, D. Yeah, so uh, and a bunch of other air show acts too. So it's going to be a fun day. I haven't been to other than Oshkosh and Sun and Fun. I haven't been to kind of a regional air show in a long, long time. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. The other thing is, uh, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend uh, on uh, June 30th, the uh, 2007 Northeast RV and Canard fly-in will be held at Lawrence Municipal Airport up here north of Boston. So if you're in the New England area and you're into either RVs or canard aircraft, uh, like uh, like long easies and so forth, uh, you might want to check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, website, or you can also look at our events calendar uh, at uncontrolledairspace.com. Those are mine. Uh, you guys, any uh, shout-outs, anything going on? Anybody you want to say hi to? Or I got somebody I want to say so long to, sort of. Uh, good friend, long-time uh, aviation industry insider, Ron Swanda is retiring near the end of the month from the General Aviation Manufacturers Association where he's been uh, a, a mover, shaker, an influence in the industry for about 25 years now. Uh, uh, so long, Ron. You did a hell of a job while you were there. Uh, you know, Ron's a longtime pilot, former military pilot, uh, command pilot, instructor pilot. Uh, he served on a lot of gamma and uh, industry uh, boards and committees, work with the FAA, work with the folks in Europe. Uh, I know we'll still see him around the circuit, but uh, we'll, we'll miss you at Gamma, and we'll miss uh, having your sage insider's perspective. Uh, second thing, real quick and dirty, I see here that, uh, Jack, you added something that we won't talk about much today, how the FAA wants to reduce its carbon footprint. I just want to express my gratitude that they're finally going to start spewing, stop spewing BS about how they need user fees. That will reduce the carbon footprint of the FAA considerably. That's, yeah, okay. that's, that's, uh, one all of the that fertilizer we're missing. Well, well, uh, no, I'd like to echo uh, Dave's comments on Ron Swanda. I've known Ron probably about as long as, as Dave has. Uh, uh, Ron had uh, joined Gamma in uh, 1982. I joined NBAA in uh, 1983 and uh, got to know Ron fairly well. And uh, uh, congratulations to Ron for uh, uh, 25 very successful and productive years and uh, uh, best wishes in his retirement. I, I, as, as Dave says, we will see him around. Great. James, any, uh, any other final words? I'd like to thank the folks at Sierra Golf Juliet, St. Augustine Airport. Uh, I parked my car in my hangar there when I was coming north and forgot to put the additive in the gas tank that keeps the fuel from fouling and uh, sent them an email indemnifying them if they would just put the stuff in the gas tank. And they emailed back and said they'd be happy to do it. Thanks so much. Truly a full-service FBO. Huh? Yes. They have well, to it's, the the count, it's actually the, the county airport authority. Uh-huh. Do they have to shake the car a little bit after they put that additive in and mix that stuff up? <laughs> well, since it's one of the low riders and it can jump up and down. There you go. You just hit the button a couple Man, times. Man, James, that's just such a new picture for me with you. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I have to get my arms around that one. I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. As usual, it's a blast to get together and talk. James Winbrandt, uh, if you uh, want to learn more about James and his work, you can Google his name. Uh, he's got uh, all sorts of information on the web about the things he's written, both about aviation and otherwise. We put a link, actually, in the show notes, to uh, which, will, which will automatically Google his name for you. So, uh, Oh, thank you. So click on that. And, uh, and if he ever gets a website, we'll tell you what that one is. Well, you don't have a website yet. That's right, right James? No, I do not. Yeah, we're going to have to fix that for you. Yeah. Thank you, Jeb. You can learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com or aviationsafetymagazine.com or avweb.com. And thanks to Dave. Learn more about Dave at davehigdon.com. And uh, I'm Jack Hodgson at jackhodgson.com or techpopuli.net. You can learn about all of us and read our blog and and, uh, leave us notes and so forth at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you guys for joining us this morning. And we'll talk to you all again next time. We've got cats. Cats. We've got cats. We've got hundreds of cats, thousands of cats, millions and billions and trillions of cats. We've got cats.